Hi everyone, my name is Connor Heffernan and welcome to another episode of the Sport and History Podcast. I'm very excited and somewhat parochial um, because we're talking about the Irish Sporting Lives collection. So I'm joined today by Terlar Reardon and Terry Clavin from the Royal Irish Academy and then also Carl Osborne, who's a returning figure, face, voice, uh, at the very least to the Sport and History Podcast and is well known to people from the BSSH. So I suppose to start off, I'll kick over to Terry and Terlar to talk about what was and is the Irish Sporting Lives collection? How did it begin? And I suppose what what does it entail? Okay, well, I, I'll go turtle. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's like it's sixty short biographies of you know Irish sports figures, you know, dating to the nineteenth century. And uh, we also have an introductory essay by Professor Paul Rouse, which sort of touches on some of the themes in the book as well. And these biographies they're drawn from the Dictionary of Irish Biography which is like the, I don't know, the foremost work, Ireland's foremost work of biographical reference, as we like to call it. There's like 11,000 lives, you know, spanning the sweep of Irish history. And, uh, you know, it features people who are Irish born, have an Irish career. And um, you also have to be, you have to be dead to get into it as well. And um, so the, um, you know, so each entry, each biography that we have in the DIB, I just, I'll just explain a bit what the Dictionary of Irish Biography is first, just so. The, the listeners will know. So the each entry in the dictionary of Irish biography, it's just the you know the essential facts of a person's life, and you know a degree of analysis and appraisal, you know a sense of their personality and all that. And um, you know generally our entries are they tend to be um, you know, they're quite factual, they're quite chronological, they're narrowly biographical, and uh, they're quite short. You're talking about maybe a thousand words to two thousand words. And, um, you know, we try to minimize the context, though it's difficult because, you know, you have to have some context, but we try to keep it, uh, to keep down the context. And, um, yeah, and so we're kind of going, a, a DIB entry is pitched at the general reader to an extent. We want it to be accessible to the general reader, but we also want it to be useful to specialist scholars. So someone who's interested, in, you know, in sports history, for example, can, can look up a DIB entry on a sports figure and get, you know, It'll help them in their work. They'll get a sense of who they are and uh, the basic the basics of their of their careers. And um, yeah, so the um, Irish Sporting Lives then draws from um, Irish Sporting Lives draws from the Dictionary of Irish Biography. So we have about five hundred and fifty lives in the Dictionary of Irish Biography that are sports related, and we chose sixty of them. Um, uh, it's sort of, I suppose, to kind of show off some of the range. Of, of the DIB and, um, you know, um, so in, in them, in choosing them, we kind of chose people who were, uh, it's not, a, it's not the 60 greatest Irish sports people. It's not a best of, I suppose I would say though, you know, I mean, we do have people that are very good that are at the peak of their sport. So there's people there that are the big household names that are, uh, you know, that win a lot that are renowned. So you've big names like George Best, um, Vincent O'Brien, the horse trainer, uh, Christy Ring, the famous Irish hurler. But we also just wanted to include people that were sort of interesting. We wanted material that was informative and engaging that, you know, they're in it perhaps because they're colorful. So they're sort of um, people that are maybe more sports celebrities than sporting greats, or they're otherwise have colorful lives. Um, or maybe their careers shed light on their sport or an aspect of of Irish history. Uh, we have a few villains as well, because sport tribes off having villains as well as heroes. And we have a few really kind of fairly notorious figures as well, a uh, handful of those. Um, so, um, you know, and we, we kind of have, um, what else sort of we have? We'd have people who are pioneers. So a lot of the women that feature here are kind of pioneers for women's sport. You know, they weren't... They, they weren't celebrities in their day because you know their women's sport was sort of marginalized at the time but they, they kind of gained a retrospective importance because they led the way there and if, um, if, if i can come in there terry i mean yeah. part of the genesis was who should we include and in what context and in what way and we began the discussions i think almost eight or nine years ago but the decade of centenary just got in the way and it was sort of put to the side as a project which turned out to i think improve what we could do in the long term but um as terry points out many women who were active in sport would have been marginalised both within their sport and within society at the time. Uh, I mean, Carol's entry on, on Lizzie LeBlanc really shows that. Um, but that also helped us with, we didn't just want the major codes and team sports 
and, and, and as Terry talked about, the major figures to, to dominate this book or the selection. The selection is intended to sort of illustrate the range and depth of the Irish sporting experience, touching back to the, to the beginning of the 19th century, really, with the boxer Dan Donnelly. Um, and I think, you know, if we failed if, in one way, is we failed to give due credit to the major 20th century uh, codes, the Gaelic games, hurling, um, uh, Gaelic football and soccer and, and rugby. They were almost, we, we worked hard to represent them, to pick the great lives, the interesting lives, but to, to allow room in the selection for the interesting people like the handballer Paddy Perry or the show jumper Irish Kellett. You know, people's interest in and participation in sport changes over over, over uh, many decades and centuries, and that's something we, we, we tried to draw out. Terry touched on the the um, how we include people in the wider dictionary of Irish biography. The, the broad criteria includes where they are born. They must be born in Ireland with a career in Ireland or born overseas with a career in Ireland. So that's how Jack Charlton gets included, and then um, there's uh, you know there's, there's various cutoffs as well in in that context. So we don't have any Irish Americans, so to speak, or a second generation Australians. Everyone everyone is Irish by birth or or with a significant part of their career in in Ireland. And um, wh- one thing I noticed just looking over notes is like a huge number of these uh, sports people or, or or promoters they were active overseas either initially or for large or all of, large parts of all of their career. And that's something that. As we stand back from the book, I, I, I take I take more and more sort of pride in it. It's not not as parochial as the title might suggest, you know. And, and that's that speaks to the Irish experience of emigration, and especially in the Anglophone world, we have a baseball player in nineteenth-century America, cricketer and rugby player in the uh, antipodes, things like that, you know. Um, and I think one of the great things is uh, myself and Terry discussed the selection so so deeply that I suspect in an alternate universe we're still talking about it, and there's other selections that would be would come out of it, you know. But um, Looking over the sixty names, I think um, mm. there isn't really anyone missing. I think it's fair to say we've got definitely got criticism that certain major figures should have been there, but that's almost from a fan or a partisan of a particular county or code, you know. Um, well, I find terrible. I just find. No, I find terrible that some of the lesser names were actually. We kind of thought that the big names would sell the book, didn't we? That it would be Jack Charlton Absolutely. or George Best or whoever, and it's actually people enjoyed reading about sports figures I'd never heard of who had, you know, very, very kind of interesting careers for whatever reason, you know, um, possibly maybe someone like Lady Heath, you know, who was this woman, uh, she was a pioneering woman athlete um, and, and she kind of popularized athletics in Britain and Ireland. And then she became, um, she got bored with athletics and became an aviator and she was one of the first women flyers as well. And of course, flying was considered a sport in the 20s. Too as well, you know, so that's why uh, that's how we justify that. But it was quite a big spectator sport because um, flying, I suppose, was a novelty. Um, but I guess it just turned out that watching airplanes fly wasn't that interesting compared to watching, you know, cars or motorcyclists, uh, you know, race each other. So it kind of died out as a spectator sport. But it was one, um, it was one certainly back then. But, well, uh, yeah, so I think. Mm, as a you know, Dublin Airport uh, has has people in the cars watching plane every day, which still baffles me. But I think that's it's a good time to go over to Carol because I think you know Carol, you both wrote a contribution to this, and then we're also set off um, the recording like a driving force in helping to promote it in the the Irish Sporting Lives Conference. So I'm wondering, you know, for you, like as a historian, can you talk through the process of writing this biography because it is actually a different. It's a different, you know, beast compared to the typical sort of writing that a historian would do. Yeah, it, it certainly is, uh, Connor. But just before I come to that, I'm, I am compelled to just pick up on something that Terry said about um, these more unusual sporting figures. And there was certainly one in there, Terry, that you actually wrote that I was so pleased to see because I'd had a, a kind of indirect connection to Breed Arkless. And Breed mm. Arkless is mm. one of these sporting figures who has just not been written about at all, um, mm. really, uh, in, in the world of um, mountaineering and climbing. Mm. And, and she contributed such a lot, did such a lot, and is one of these, you know, well, you know, you should be speaking about her, but, you know, one of these people who kind of juggled this really demanding domestic life, you know, and I'm getting this from what you wrote in in the mm. book. And it was so gratifying to me to see a figure like that included as one of the 60 within this book. So before I move on, I don't know if, if Terry just wants to say something about Breed Arkless, because to me, that's a really important entry. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, she had eight kids while becoming a world-class mountaineer. So, yeah. and I think 
from the ages of about 13 or even younger, she was bringing them up Mount Blanc with her, I think, as well. So uh, you know, I suppose that's how you do it. You mix your, your, your child raising duties with sport. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, she was a, a very interesting one because, you know, some people could say, why is she in this? But I think she made an outstanding contribution to mountaineering in general and mm -hmm. particularly to encouraging women to do the sport as well. And, you know, she never... She didn't climb any really high peaks. So you can say, oh, why is she in it? But I, mean, I think if you just read her life, you see she made an outstanding contribution of getting people into it, you know. And in fact, she she tried to climb Everest and just said, no, this is a joke. You know, this yeah. is just, you know, commercialism yeah. and egotism and everything and going just some great mountains in the Himalayas. And, you know, you don't have to spend half an hour, you know, whatever. You know, there's that queue on Mount Everest now to get up it, you know. Um, so I think... For probably the purists, maybe for the mountaineering purists, she would be, uh, you know, she's someone people should look up to as well. Um, and also she just said how she she set up classes that specifically taught women how to climb because uh, they kind of need to teach women how to climb differently to men as well because, you know, the bodies are sort of slightly different or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, she, she was a really fascinating figure uh, to do. I really enjoyed doing her and uh, hopefully, you know, we can help to raise her profile. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. It, that was a brilliant entry. Turlo, did you want to say something? Oh, just about very briefly, that? Uh, just chiming in with what you what you said, Carol. What, what to me, Breed Arthur is fascinating as an outsider in so many ways. But one of the things that stuck out to me reading it many times was Terry makes a really interesting point about that as a woman climber, uh, her physiology and strength was 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 you know was different to male climbers. So she would have pioneered an approach that would have been teaching other women to climb and recognizing their flexibility and strength, but not necessarily their power and endurance. And that, that to me is really, really interesting because it's a subtle theme in some of the other entries. Um, you know, the, 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 the pioneer women, what they had to wear, how they had to undertake sport. And, and that it's there in Arctis as well. You know, and it's so it's amazing to think when you read what she did and when she's getting her dues. Yeah, yeah you can probably, with two women mountaineers, Carol, as you know, with Lizzie LeBlond as well. Yeah. So, and just there's about 100 years between them as well. So, it's kind of an interesting comparison. You can see how the sport has developed to an extent over that period as well, you know. And um, I suppose Lizzie LeBlond was, of course, incredibly rich. I mean, one of the richest aristocratic women in, in Britain and Ireland. And whereas Breda was uh, born working class part of Dublin, you know. So, it's just seeing how, as well, how sports become more, more open to people as well over that time. Oh, Terry, you're onto something there. I tell you, that would be a really nice kind of thing to write about, mm. actually. So I mm. might have to get back to you on that one. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Ideas <laughs> Factory is working already. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, and yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I've, mm. I I already mm. you know I've said to to Turlo actually that um sort of before I I I was given this opportunity to write about uh, Mrs Mrs Leblond or what or one whatever various names you want to refer to her to. Obviously, she was a three times married woman, and yeah. Turlo. Turlo and I did grapple with the with which name should consistently be used in the entry from for, for Elizabeth LeBlond. Um, you know, but but you um now I've lost my train of thought altogether now because I'm, well, I'm so enthusiastic and excited. Um <laughs> Well we decided Lizzie LeBlond was the best name and sort of ripped off the tone best. So we went for Lizzie LeBlond. Yeah, yeah. oh actually yeah, the information was, always works. Yeah, well that that was the thing I was gonna say is that before I started the entry, I wasn't uh, probably because I hadn't done enough research on her, if I'm absolutely honest. You know, she was slotted into my PhD thesis. And um and I said to Turlow right at the at the end of the of the process that actually as a result of having that opportunity to write about her, I'd actually warmed <coughs> to her quite a bit more as a figure. Mm. But also just actually I don't think I really, you know, realized just how prolific she'd been and just how many how many talents that she had and okay yes yeah, she's mm. an aristocratic woman she's got the wealth etc but nevertheless mm. you know she was still quite a remarkable figure and and writing for the dictionary allowed me to kind of get closer mm. to her as a figure mm. yeah well just to give our listeners an idea of what lizzie did i mean she was absolutely fearless but also very artistic she was a pioneer photographer and filmmaker mm -hmm. she was uh, undertaking and passing the crest to run um all sorts of bobsledding and everything and this is you know late victorian early edwardian British European Alpine cultures, as as Carol will know better than me, is quite something. Um, I, I definitely think Carol is uh, the best place to write a full scale biography on Lizzie LeBlanc, but that might be a subject for another podcast <laughs> and another book down the line. You know, she's a, oh. she's a, a fine candidate. Oh. 
Well, well, I, I, th- I think it would probably be. I'd pro- the only trouble with that, Turlo, is I'd probably be tapping you on your shoulder quite a bit because one, <laughs> because one of the things, of course, that that often doesn't get fully recognised. I think in these kinds of projects, um, Connor, sort of uh, speaking more now about the writing of the entries, which was one of the questions that you asked, is actually just just how much legwork editors on these kinds of projects actually do. Mm-hmm. You know, because there is is no doubt. You know, and I, and I'm and I'm not and I'm not just saying this to to sort of um unnecessarily praise Turlo or Terry, but the but the point is, is that you know there you you can begin to write something and think that you've done a reasonably good job on it, but the kinds of questions that skilled editors will ask you, and actually also the additional background research that editors do to try and pull a piece round and get it to the best standard that it can be, is really critical in these kinds of uh, pursuits i think i think the, the and the other thing as well is the is you know good good editors as well they'll give you a bit of flexibility so right at the beginning i i, I can't remember how many words i was offered to do mrs leblond and then i went back to turlo and i sort of said to him i don't think i can write her in in so, you know in this amount of words i'm going to need a bit more you know slack in the word count and you know and and uh, i i was given that extra amount of word count in order to do what I what I would call a you know a more realistic job of that actual entry um so in contrast he's saying um Connor about you know previous experience of writing entries mm. entries when I wrote for the Oxford Dictionary uh, of National Biography now this was in the early 2000s so we're talking a lot a long time ago now I was a I was a, a PhD student then and I had never written anything uh, like that before and I think I can't remember did they give me 750 words for um for some really quite significant female mountaineers climbers and it it was really just a huge amount of research and it was like what do they say it's like um trying what is it where they say you put a put trying to fit a a pint into a quart, a quart into a pint pot. You know, you're you're trying to squeeze so much, and it just becomes really a list of achievements with no texture around it. And I think I think that these sporting lives in this book they do they do give an opportunity to put a bit of that texture because uh, we were actually, we're allowed to. Yeah, this might be one for all three of you because I was going to say you know a, a danger with a project like this which actually has been avoided is either giving too much narrative and everything being lost or not giving enough and then just having to do the the wikipedia entry right you know like 1957 won this 1958 did this like how was that tension managed because each of the biographies be it say lizzie blonde or you know george best or mark hopley or any of these individuals like there is a richness to it but uh succinctness in it as well so turlo you have your hand up yeah, it's a really good point. It's something that we, myself and Terry, have been working on the wider dictionary of Irish biography for a long time. But to return to Carol, we're, we're almost poacher turned gamekeeper on this one. You know, we we go to our editors as well, looking to extend an article when we feel necessary, and you kind of get behind the subject a bit. But it's also just the classic question of looking with new eyes over work and seeing where things can come in and out and all that. But with regards to narrative and description, I think in some of the lives, for example, when I wrote on Ken Goodall, who I'm a rugby fan, I've never heard of before. I was assigned to write him about a decade ago, and the evolution of the game during his career and afterwards led me to sort of explain how rugby had changed, line-outs, frequency, all that type of thing, penalties. Similar with another rugby life we were we wrote for this entry, Dave Gallagher, scrums were formed differently 120 years ago. But I know this this comes up again and again, like Terry wrote on, uh, or substantially re- revised the golfer, um, 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 who, you know, what she wore when she played golf, long skirts. Oh, the you have to describe yeah. to the reader exactly. Mayhazard, exactly. You know, you almost need to use a sentence or two to put this in context because it's, even though we were able to include images, it's wonderful. Um, you're trying to explain why sometimes, where other other sports and, and games, they're they're either well-known or relatively simple. They don't need that kind of context. But I think it comes up in um, Molly Gill's entry, this fascinating camogie player, um, which w- what hurling is broadly called in Ireland when played by women for some reason. Um, you know, there used to be a second bar above the above the crossbar where there was a point area you could score into. Like, I didn't know anything about that. So the, we're telling the story of sport a little bit anyway in, in a piecemeal way th- through the codes evolving. And that was a fascinating part of it for, for me, especially with a daughter who now plays camogie and seeing how the game um, operates. The, 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 
that tension's always there. And I think Terry will probably talked to you a bit more about it now. Like in the narrative description, what's going on, we can end up with places and lists and titles without any color or vignettes about a character. You know, it's hard. It's a hard one sometimes. Yeah, I guess we've just been doing it on and off for 20 years now, Turtle. So you kind of get a bit of a feel for it, but it's kind of trial and error. And yeah, I mean, we always say we try to keep the narrative moving. Like if you look over an entry, you want to see the years. Do you want to look down the sentences and see the years progressing nicely? But you just don't want it to be a catalogue of facts either, the Wikipedia entry approach, you know. So I don't know, I guess it's the old cliche narrative taken by a little bit of analysis, I suppose, as you go along. And just kind of, you kind of, there's places where you can slip in a bit of analysis or context along the way. You know, you can kind of slip one in to half a sentence or slip one into a sentence and then go back to kind of trying to keep the narrative moving forward. There's just there's these sort of tricks you learn to do, I suppose, after a while. But like context is the great imponderable. How much context do you need? And it's it's very hard and it depends on the individual entry. I mean, I think with that rugby entry, it's like what you say, Turlo, that you think you understand the sport and then you read about rugby 100 years ago and you're kind of going, what is this? And, you, you know, the position wasn't the guy David Gallagher played as a wing forward, but it meant something completely different a uh, hundred years yeah, ago. Yeah, you know, and yeah, you can go down a rabbit like hole. That. But um, yeah, that yeah. that one of the overarching themes as a reader of the book almost a year later is the the sports have evolved so much and and continue to do so. You know, it's 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 a little bit like institutions; they're not really staying the same. They're they're being nudged and, and shaved and 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 kind of molded all the time and i think that stands up in soccer one of the great entries is offside bill mccracken or bill offside mccracken whose singular ability to disrupt defenses or attacks led to the offside rule being being changed in the 20s and and there's a lot of little lies like that where um you know they they're, they're they were they're hopefully inter- interesting to the general reader but all stand up also stand up to a little bit of scrutiny from you know people who might be listening to listening to this podcast i mean one of the um the wider themes there that what that contributes to this, which is the you know the the abundance, the tsunami of digital newspapers that are, or the digitized newspaper services that, that emerged in the last few decades, we were able to go back and reinterrogate some of these lives that have been previously written, um, and 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 fill in color. Uh, Terry did some work on uh, Beauchamp Day, this professional runner whose career basically ended after he stopped running, or at least we thought, and then there was this whole new. Um, afterlife that could be filled in, similar with a lot of the, especially the women, uh, sporting women who, you know, there's a, there's an ongoing sort of conurbation of uh, tragic and, uh, ends in sport as in many celebrity and public lives and, and no less so for, for some of these women. And I think it was um, the, the the tennis player um, who won the U.S. Mabel, Mabel Cahill, yeah. Mabel Cahill, I mean, her end at yeah. a rooming house with an alcohol problem is only really solvable or presentable mm. because of the newspaper research. So that's something that contributed in the background here and where before, you know, the writers or editors or researchers would be relying on secondary works and very little primary material because you just couldn't scan it, you couldn't search it, you know. And it yeah, I mean, it's, the original DIB was published in 2009 and not long after there was this, as I said, the tsunami of newspaper digitization and you know, there probably was underway at the time, but it wasn't very searchable still. And the search engines improved and it just became a lot more possible to determine a lot of these facts. So, uh, you know, when we, uh, it was kind of a lockdown project, Turlo, was that we were doing it during lockdown. Absolutely. Was, yeah. that, that was a big help because we were kind of, uh, we'd stopped publishing our normal DIB entries at that time temporarily. So it gave us time to kind of go back and really get get it right as well you know and we commissioned new entries as well for for the purposes of this volume as well because uh again of the research well again i suppose connor you know all about this that you know the, the discipline of sports history has really come on leap and bounds uh, in ireland and i think elsewhere as well particularly in ireland the last 20 years so there's just there's just been a lot more published uh and since 2009 there's about seven or eight of our lives that we did where you know really good biographies have been published on them for the first time um uh, I think the like the Irish athlete Martin Sheridan, who competed for America actually in the Olympics, but won I think nine Olympic medals across three Olympics. And there was you know a, a local woman who's from Mayo, and a local Mayo woman basically did this. You know, it's a doorstopper, but it's very well researched mm-hmm. and has everything you need there. You know, and it really again helped us to sort of uh, enrich enrich the existing entry. I suppose you would say, you know, and uh, yeah, he was an interesting character as well. He's he quite a advanced Irish nationalist as well, and he kind of stirred trouble uh, at the 1908 Olympics, I believe, in uh, in London. And uh, you know, we're seeing the again that's a team as well, you know, sports 
and nationalism and how, uh, you know, um, I suppose nationalism can be good for sport. You know, sports, sports organizers, sports promoters can use nationalism to generate interest. But it can be a bit of it's a bit like riding a tiger because you know nationalist passions can get a bit out of hand as well, and it can uh, become a problem ne- for the sport. Never in, Ar- never in Ireland. Um, so I think Carlo <laughs> with his hand up, but I I, I want to hook yeah. Carlo back in first if that's okay because it's in- it's great hearing it from the editor's uh, point of view, and mm-hmm. I think um, and certainly myself, I'm reeling from a review or two on something I submitted recently. Historians can be quite um, particular about their words, and it's always it's sort of beaten into us to give more context, more context, more context. So I'm wondering. Carl, when you're writing and submitting, what is that negotiation like between almost forget forgetting some of the strictures of uh, traditional history writing and, and putting it into this more succinct form where you're you're drawing from maybe the most important context, but then being told like do that in less words. Um. Well, well, actually, I mean, on the one hand, I think it's a great discipline myself to be told that you that you can't that you can't do a particular thing because because I I suppose. Um, but on the other hand, it it it's a bit tragic because um, you know I I I must admit I probably did quite a. I did do quite a lot of research on Mrs. LeBlond that didn't come anywhere near and end up coming anywhere near the actual entry. And I remember being particularly aggrieved about a cut that was made about Fred Burnaby, you know, the hero of Abu Klee who got a spear in the neck, you know, and and I kind of thought that that somehow, you know, Fred Burnaby was quite an influential figure on uh, on Elizabeth on on the young on his young wife, you know, Elizabeth Burnaby at the time as she was. And so that was kind of, I kind of thought all oh, that kind of texture, but I think I mean Fred did get a mention in the end, I think. But um so, you know, but it's no different. It's no different in some respects to writing a thesis because because even in a piece of work that huge, you have to you have to make some quite um big decisions about what goes in and, and what gets uh, thrown out. I mean in some respects. In and in natural fact, I think that the thing about figures, historical figures, is if you read a lot of bigger pieces of work, so let's take PhD thesis, as I said earlier, you know, I I mentioned plenty of different female timers and mountaineers in, in my in my research, but but do we scratch beneath the surface to really find out about who those figures are? You know, what what there is else about them that makes them even perhaps more significant than we're already claiming or or you know we don't always get at that kind of information so on so in some respects getting the opportunity to do a single entry on somebody actually gives you more opportunity to write about them and give them more texture so it's it's quite a complex kind of thing and i and i just think that actually for for historians it's a nice kind of discipline to say right you know you you've you've got to account for somebody Mm-hmm. in this space and of course as i've said before the thing is if you're if you're working with with editors who are experienced in what they're what they're doing and, and they can go and they guide you which they do you know then then actually that can be a very um good learning process i think for people who are sports historians or any historian on that nexus, like i'm, I'm interested in one of the reasons why i love this book both for say a general audience but then a historical audience, it, it actually makes a really important intervention in Irish sport history writing because, as I said, like it has grown substantially since say 2010 in particular. But like there are so many, you know, undiscovered avenues. There's so many areas that I've been lost over, especially around women's history, but just under under researched areas. Like I mean, there has traditionally been a focus on the sort of holy trinity uh, of the GA rugby and soccer. And I'm I'm interested, you know, when you're devising this and you're interested in giving due weight to everything, was there a sense of like try, trying to to nudge or you know in a certain direction, or is that just a happy outcome that now we have actually a really good grounding? Like if a you know budding sport historian came to me first, I'd say look at the job market, but then second, I'd say look, you know, read Irish sporting lives, effectively pick a figure, pick a sport, and see if that interests you. But Terla, you have your hand up. Yeah. 
just very briefly, I just want to say a good example here is Molly Seaton, the, the soccer yep. player in Belfast. The colour that Steve Bolton was able to bring to her life and Terry worked on it with him, you know, the length of the shorts, the purience of the press reporting, that speaks to what Carol's talking about. Like, they're not just figures. And then also there was a little bit of nationalism involved in there. Terry might talk to you about, you know, they were presenting these team of women soccer players as Ireland against Scotland or Ireland against France. And they were sort of amateur teams coming together. The, the book end of that is Anne O'Brien, this amazing, uh, you know, top class international soccer player who's picking up titles in Italy and France, relatively unknown in Ireland, um, who who has an amazing career into the 1990s, couldn't even get back to Ireland to play for Ireland. You know, there wasn't money and all this type of thing. To, to go back to your point, I was just going slightly tangential. I was just going through um, an, an unusual enough magazine from the early 1980s in Ireland called Status that only lasted nine months. Um, I found three or four really interesting sporting uh, women in there, a poker player, a jockey. Um, they may not be dead yet, but I straight away want to took notes and want to talk to Terry about them because we can only find what's there. And the yeah. further and deeper we look, we find these interesting lives. To go back to the initial selection, we certainly wanted, and Terry will come in in a second, I'm sure, to, resent, to present, not resent, present the Holy Trinity uh, as an atheist, a secular aggressive atheist. But we knew we had to engage with it. We couldn't ignore it. We couldn't let it dominate. Um, we couldn't let this be like another outpouring of masculine nationalist, you know, uh, field sports and ball sports. So from the beginning, I was writing about people like Beatrice Hill Lowe, uh, John, John O'Reilly, the butcher and, and hockey player. So I was aware that, you know, those sports and those codes needed to be represented, primarily often by women as well, because, you know, um, uh, croquet 110 years ago women were dominating and led to rule changes which the Nina Coote article will show I think it's about opening our mind and our eyes a little bit uh, mm -hmm. we were fortunate that being tasked with this project in the years we undertook it there was lives available to consider 20 years earlier I don't think we would have found many of these interesting women Terry would we they wouldn't have been searchable we would have been aware of them because yeah the, the research wasn't there or the resources wouldn't have been there to kind of uncover them really you know I mean you mentioned Molly Seaton. I mean, um, Steve Bolton published his research into her life online, I think, in autumn 2020. Like, we're literally just putting it together. We're putting our final list yeah. together. We needed a woman soccer player, and it was providential, basically, that uh, we found his material online, and it was great. Uh, it was great to get him. Um, yeah, I suppose we didn't. Yeah, we, one of the things we were looking for was diversity of sports, wasn't it, Terlo? That was one thing we were determined to get. Mm. And... I think you should bear in mind as well that um, sports wax and wane in popularity, like rugby is very popular now in soccer, but, you know, they were less popular in the past as well. They've come on a bit, you know, and that other sports. I often feel actually that horse racing probably got shortchanged a bit in our volume. There's two horse racing entries. I mean, like horse racing was huge in Ireland mm -hmm. about 60 or 70 years ago. And it's not as popular now, though it's still doing quite well as an industry. As a spectator sport, it's not as popular. Yeah, yeah. Well, we could, yeah, we won't go there. Yeah. But, um, uh, but what, yeah, uh, and, what two great entries, Terry, you know, uh, Arkel and Vincent O'Brien and Pat Taft. Yeah. Know, it, it's a yeah. great history of, of horse racing for people who don't know much about it, like myself, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, jockeys would have been, you know, huge sporting figures in the 50s, uh, mm -hmm. but they're not so much, they're not so much now. I mean, stuff like you mentioned, croquet. You know, apparently Ireland dominated croquet, men and women in the 1910s, which I didn't know. Um, handball was very popular in Ireland around the middle of the 20th century, and it's you know, totally fallen off the cliff. So just, you know, you know, things like that, that we, we, we tried to um, give a sense of, you know. And even things like bare knuckle brawling, which doesn't exist anymore as a sport, thankfully. But, um, you know, it was quite popular at one time. Well, not as an organized sport, Turlo. Not as an organized sport. I think uh, a certain major uh, martial arts yeah. organization in America uh, certainly yes. resembled it, but <laughs> leave that one lie. Um, but it is funny, though, you know, both of you have alluded to the sort of importance of newspaper archives. Like, I just, there's a funny story, you know, when I started my PhD and Paul Rouse, who wrote the introduction for our sporting lives, talked about going to the National Library and reading every edition of the newspaper page by page by page. And he said to me, like, how are you doing your research? And I was like, well, I just type Eugene Sander into, you know, in, 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 into the database. Yeah, and yeah. I just clicked through all of the different links. And he sort of looked at me like I had six heads. Um, and that was mm. sort of just the differing time frames. Um, mm. Again, I shouldn't be as lazy, but here I am. So I want to bring Carol in again, just talking about, because obviously the book was launched, but then we had, there was also the Irish Sporting Lives um, conference, which we had at Ulster University. And Carol did the wonderful thing that Carol does is she shoulder tapped me and then had a great idea and a lot of enthusiasm. 
and then suddenly I'm in the midst of organizing a conference and I didn't know how I got there. Uh, but very enjoyable. So, Carl, can I bring you in then on talking about the, the conference and say the caliber of people who are talking at it? And I think the thing that was really wonderful to see was there are a lot of names that say I didn't know who are doing work on Irish sport history on the island of Ireland because uh, the Sport History Ireland conference has sort of stopped for the last number of years. So we actually hadn't had a meeting point for Irish sport historians. And it was so many names I hadn't seen, so many people doing individual pieces. And I think it was really like a great moment that linked in really well with the book. Yeah, it it was absolutely great. I mean, you know, people talk about public history, you know, public historians and, you know, there there were that was one of the most gratifying things I think about the way the program came out that you you know that 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 you put together essentially uh Connor but it came from uh, the call for papers and it yielded abstracts from, you know, all sorts of different people and I think that that was definitely one of the strengths of the event as it as it turned out but um but just just to rewind rewind a bit and you you sort of say Connor that you don't know how you got stuck like put in the thrust in the middle of it but I think I know I know how it happened and um and and I I did actually I did actually flick back through some of my emails earlier today to to actually try and sort of pin down how it did happen so what I want to want to say to everybody who's listening to this podcast is if ever you get an email from me that says hello, I hope all's well with you today, then just be careful because the next line is going to be, I recently did this and this and this, and I was just wondering whether, and that's exactly what happened. So I, I thought, hello, Connor, I hope all's well with you today. I recently finished an entry for the Dictionary of Irish Biography, just the one with with great support from from Turlough Riordan, and, and I, I mentioned you to him. And so, thinking about events as I do, it's due for publication. I don't suppose now you're at Ulster that you have any plans to organise a conference or a workshop and uh, perhaps even take BSSH to Ulster and we could have a panel about Irish sporting lives. To which, Connor, you replied, yeah, that's a great idea, Carol. And then you began to run with it, Connor. So I actually think that a, that a lot of the credit should should go to to you. I think it was supposed to be initially a one day symposium, but we had such a good response on the call for papers, as you'll remember, that it then and also you had the great idea, Connor, to do the workshop. Which so I've got to say something about that because when I was writing for the dictionary of um, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. No, nothing like the guidance existed really mm-hmm. that that occurred at the event at, at Ulster. I mean, the you know to have Turlow and Terry there giving that sort of workshop and that guidance about how to go about writing a sporting life because obviously we had the workshop in the in the event as well. Margaret Roberts coming forward and giving that really really excellent presentation. All all of her trade secrets about how to run searches. You know, Helena Byrne, who'd also written for, obviously, the Irish Sporting Lives book as well. She came forward and was talking about web archives and searches. So I think the texture of the event, Connor, I I need to throw that ball back to you and say perhaps you can say a bit more about the event as well, because those ideas came from you. Um. I have a terrible habit of like weaponizing positivity. So when people email me, like I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. And then I'm like, you know, law of averages, 90% of these I'll never see the light of day. Um, so that's maybe a, a look behind the curtain on my part. I think, yeah, the putting together the abstract, like there was an overwhelming response. A lot of people actually from Northern Ireland, which was great because sport history in Ireland in terms of like the studies that are done has tended to be dominant from the Republic of Ireland, with the exception, obviously, of Alan Burner and the sort of, you know, great work that was done on sort of sectarian sport, especially in sociology. So there was a number of people who came forward sort of from the six counties, which is really heartwarming to see because that gives a different depiction of sport, you know, on the island of Ireland. And then there was several figures who sort of, I think, added things on. I know there was a lot of, um, like, really heartfelt thanks you know when say terry and turley when you went up to people and said like you know we had no idea this is great etc there was a sort of validation in it because sport history in ireland can be such a sort of lonely pursuit in many different ways uh, just to give a, a plug you know margaret roberts gave a great um workshop on how to use newspaper archives we should be doing that again this summer for the bssh conference at mmu 
which was just an absolute clinic. Like, you know, I'd been using newspaper archives for nearly a decade at that point, like really intensely for my research. And I realized that it's, you know, effectively giving my toddler crayons and then getting angry at him when he draws on the wall. Like that's effectively where my skill level um, was at. So I suppose I'll, like all good Irish people, I'll kick away any um, praise and, and move the topic swiftly on back to Turlough and Terry. I suppose what were, were your um, reactions and responses to the conference? Because I thought it was a really nice moment for you to see first how Irish portionalized the book sort of sits within the history itself and this lived history, but also seeing that like stepping into this kind of, you know, growing interest in sports that don't fit into that trinity. It, it was a real joy to be there. You know, Terry might agree, one of the things we tend to do with people who work on the dictionary, we're always looking for people to include in the dictionary. So there was just so many papers about interesting lies, both sporting-wise and bio, bi- biographically-wise in terms of the research being done. For me, it was an introduction to the new generation who are coming through, people like Julian Kenne, and really interesting work that I'm really keen to read more about because we, we can only sort of dive in and out of certain areas. Um, and also, as, as you touched on, Connor, I mean, the not the all-island nature, but the way that it was uh, a real deep and wide panoply of kind of sporting lines were presented, both sport and, you know, not quite ethnic background, but cultural or nationalist background or non-nationalist background. That was, that was really interesting. Uh, Katie Liston's paper on Maeve Kyle, um was was fascinating on so many levels i mean and that that area i think is is much more familiar to carol and connor perhaps than myself and terry but uh where sociology meets history and sport is particularly interesting and um you know it was it was wonderful to uh i actually just couldn't get to all the papers i wanted to do which i i'd like to think is a is a rare enough problem you know um we, myself and terry sort of divided them up yeah but, uh, we were kind of overwhelmed it was just paper after paper, it wasn't particularly on the Saturday. It was almost just running around trying to keep up and plenty of uh, potential DIB entries as well. Um, I said it to a few, few the people giving papers as well. And uh, they were very conscientious and they're all, oh, I need to do more research. I'll get back to you. You know, so they were, yeah, they were taking it very seriously anyway. So that was great. So we'll, hopefully in due course, we'll, uh, we'll get a few DIB entries with bear fruit in that respect. But the... Uh, just the level of of enthusiasm and interest was was great to see, and I I guess it must be great for everyone who's practicing sports history to go to events like this as well, just to sort of uh, you know touch base with each other. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, it's uh, like sort of as I mentioned, um, you know, the Sport History Ireland, which is a great conference in society, that sort of fell mm-hmm. away, and there's sort of an, an odd uh, apolitical embracement of the VSSH onto you know the, mm-hmm. the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being an Irish uh, historian who's currently chair of the BSSH, uh, the mm. irony is not lost on me that a lot of my work is mm. about colonialism mm. and imperialism. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll put that aside for the minute. I, I well, wanted, we, was, go ahead, Terry. Oh, no, I just said we made a conscious effort as well to try to get as many people from the north into the sporting lives as well, because uh, DIB is an All-Ireland project, even though even though we're based in Dublin, that we try to include Northern Ireland lives as much as possible. So and it was a bit tricky because of the GAA. It tended to, all the GAA lives tended to come from the south. So, um, but, you know, the, the north did well in soccer and rugby, and justifiably so, because the north has made a good contribution to soccer and rugby uh, down for the years. Just on that, I've had a few kind of subtle um, social criticisms that there's barely a Leinster rugby player in there. But, you know, if we were going to put in Carl Mullen, we couldn't put in Jack Kyle. And that was sort of a classic balance for myself and Terry in various areas, although we picked three hurlers from the golden age, Terry, I think. But they, I think they stand up as lives together and, and separately. Um, yeah, but it, it, yeah. It, the, the, it lack of a player, the lack of a Leinster player was probably one thing. But I mean, I suppose Leinster are winning everything now anyway, so they can, yeah. they, they'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. It all it all comes around, but it also shows you the mm. history of, of rugby outside of the 1990s and noughties. <clears> and, and that's something that I learned a lot doing in this book about the sports and the codes I wouldn't have known too much about. Um, and, uh, you know, again, just to say, Terry touched on lockdown, if it wasn't for the free open access um, New Zealand and Australian newspaper databases, which aren't behind paywalls, which is a cultural thing, I think quite deeply ingrained in those countries, uh, we couldn't have worked on a variety of the lives. Um, you know, even... Um, Beauchamp Day, who ran out there, uh, particularly um, Dave Gallagher, who, who I was rewriting based on new material. And then um, Tom Horan, the cricketer, who was played in the famous Ashes game for England and or, for Australia, and also was a, a captain of Australian cricket. I mean, the, what you can do with some countries' research infrastructure in terms of national archives, registry of deeds, birth, deaths, marriages, is mind-blowing. And what you can't do then in certain other countries' infrastructure is 
very, very annoying and frustrating when you see a, a Star Trek like setup in Australia. But um, you know that that's the jinx of the reels. And you touched on something, Connor, when you told the story about talking to Paul Rouse. When you have an unusual an, an, an unusually named person and you're researching them in the digital newspapers, it's an utter joy. But if you were to get a Mick Murphy or a, a Stephen Byrne, <laughs> it's <laughs> absolute. Be, you know, monstrous pain. So uh, mm. my eyes light up when I see an unusual forename or surname or both. Mm. It just mm. makes it so much more um, easy in a way, you know. But uh, the Margaret Roberts, I mean, she taught me more than a few tricks, and and I, and I wasn't. Well, I wasn't it was terrifying. It was terrifying. It was terrifying listening to her workshop because you're just thinking, my God, what have I been missing for the last mm, ten years? What exactly. valuable sources have I been completely missing for the last ten years? Yeah. Mm. Oh. Well, it's uh, it's no surprise that there's a, a style of sport history sort of popularized at MMU that is very like, deeply focused on biography and the internet interlocking networks between the biographies. Even though I respect it and cite it quite a lot, I can never for the life of me pronounce it. Carola, do you have prosopography? Yeah, uh, and, and it, prosopography, prosopography. Yeah, you didn't want it. So, like, say quick and fast, and then prosopography. That's it. Prosopography. I hope. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll, Mar- I'll Margaret, bit... Margaret will tell me when I see her at the BSSH mm. in the summer. <laughs> I'll finally be an academic when I can say that correctly. Um, so mm. I'm conscious of time and I think, you know, you've been more than generous with yours. So I'll, I'll sort of throw a question out to the group, um, which is, I suppose, what was the most like surprising or, you know, enriching part of this project? And we can maybe work around the digital room and whoever I want. We've all enjoyed it. Can I? I just think actually, um, even though I say so myself, I think having the event for me was really was really the thing because it were it it really from a personal point of view, it was so enlightening for me. In fact, it it in a sense it made me realise how how little I know actually, and that's always quite a quite a really enlightening um, good learning situation to be in. You know, seeing all the research that others, you know, people people out in you know public historians are doing, I think is really important for academic historians to see and to see the quality of that work as well. Getting the opportunity to meet people, getting the opportunity to meet Terry and Turlow as well. You know. How, well, Turlo, the amount of emails that we exchanged, I think I was quite high maintenance on that project. So, you know, I'm not at all getting the opportunity to meet people as well and seeing you, Connor, as well, coming across Thank the you. water to see you was really, really good. So it was the, I think the writing, yes, but the event was, was really great. Um, without wishing to be uh, or sound like an anodyne post-match interview, I suppose for me it was the, with the volume itself, what I worked on with Terry and others, it was the team effort nature. And just something occurred to me just there. We we included image for, images for all 60 lives, which was a, a, a body of work in and of itself. But much of that was based on um, specialists, amateur historians, local historians, sports clubs, family members, archivists, the GA, archivist Adam Staunton in particular, and then we went down journeys to find images and um, quite unusual for, say, John Doyle, the hurler. Uh, I ended up speaking to his son to confirm the image we had was his dad, because apparently most of the images that are his dad are not his dad. And then chasing down an image on Terry Mullen, this amazing Paralympian, led me to speak to her sister. And, you know, this this part of it, the sort of the, the, the tangible humanity of it all was, uh, was, was, was a great pleasure. But th- th- that was represented in the wonderful conference in Belfast because... Right outside uh, the wonderful new University of Ulster building, uh, or Ulster University building, is a statue to Rinty Monaghan, who is not in the DID. He's a, a lesser known Ulster boxer, shall we say, but it, there was a certain circularity there. In the morning of it, I walked down to see the blue plaque to um, Farrah Copley, Matt Copley, this amazing Be- Belfast uh, women's boxing promoter who, who uh, who's also in the volume. So there's, there's all these loops and circles that I, that, I, that I often think of, and it's wonderful to talk to you today about them again. It's brought some of them back to me, you know. Well, I enjoyed probably working with some of our, our writers, people who wrote uh, the entries first, particularly some of the people we commissioned to write the the new entries. Uh, you were dealing, I think, with Carol uh, Turlow, but I, I was speak, I was talking to Helena Byrne and Steve Bolton, who are two women's soccer players, and they were very, uh, you know, they, they were very expert and very enthusiastic um, about it. And it's just great to deal with people who are who are so into what they do, you know, and are so passionate about it. And uh, you, you know, you feel you're in. The entry is in safe hands as well and uh you know and they didn't complain too much when i tried to take things out or intervene or anything like that you know and um i actually 
think as well with some of the, when we commissioned some of the new women's entries that we did, also people like Molly Gill, who's like, you know, the best camogie player of the first generation. Then she's president of the Camogie Association. She's important in growing the game, but then there's a lot of politics involved in it and she's ousted. And it was just a, I'd never heard of her and there hadn't been much done on her. Very little work been published on her and she had a fascinating life. And it's just, it was just great to realize that there's a lot of underexplored areas of sports history out there, you know, and with Anne O'Brien, again, she has this amazing career uh, where she's pretty much one of the best women's soccer players in the world. And she goes to Italy, which is the top league in the world and wins everything there. And again, no one in Ireland has ever heard of her. So it's just great to see that there's still, and it must be great for sports historians as well. There's a lot of sort of untilled, untilled fields out there for them. And, um, and if they find anyone who's eligible for the DIB, they should come to us as well because, uh, you know, we're, we're very eager to get uh, new entries all the time. And we, you know, they can write an entry for us and we'll give them a platform. So, yeah, it was great. And just to come in there, all of our brilliant contributors are, of course, unpaid, unfortunately. That's the nature of the work for the DIB. But so we're very grateful for the efforts of, of the people Terry talked about there and what everyone else yeah. who, who worked on it with us and our colleagues in RIA publications as well. You know, we're, we're really proud of it. And, and hopefully it might get... Uh, get a few more legs as, as each Christmas comes around, you know, but um, one day do a successful volume, but uh, yeah. not too soon. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, your Father's Day, Christmas Day, anniversaries, births, etc., Easter, you know, I mean, for, for any occasion, and if people do want to buy it, mm-hmm. it is available from, you know, all from major bookstores in Ireland, you can also buy it directly from the Royal Irish Academy site, and it is Irish Sporting Lives, mm-hmm. and unlike really all history books uh, in so many ways, it's very reasonably priced at nineteen ninety five. Um, my you know, family and spouse still don't understand that. Although my first book was priced at 120 euro, I do not see any of that money. So it's not. It's nice to see affordable history books um, mm-hmm. put out there, and do and do check out the Royal Irish Academy website. So I'll end just by saying thank you to Turlo, Terry, and Carol for you know giving of your time so. and encourage everyone to check out the book. So thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thank for you. Coming. <laughs>